We made it to episode 100, and I want to thank you all for your support, reviews, guest appearances, and keeping me going through the hardest part of my life. You really have no idea how much you all mean to me. My day job of speaking, training, and consulting led me to this podcast. It is a passion project, and I know from hearing from so many of you that it means a lot to you. Frank Perry is lucky number 100. Red Collar Crime is what we talk about and so much more. It's really a great episode as always, but so meaningful because of the connection with all things white collar crime. Let's get going and here's to 100 more episodes at least. Okay, everyone knows me as pink for pink collar crime lady, but today you are going to hear from red, as in red collar crime. We have Frank Perry on Fraudish today, and I am so excited to introduce you guys, if you don't already know him, because you should know Frank Perry. So, Frank, um, we're going to start with the speed round, and then you can give your spiel, okay? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very excited. Um, Okay, when I say the word fraud, what do you think of? I think of criminals, manipulative individuals, uh, people exploiting other people, both financially and violently at times. Ooh, okay. How about ethics? Uh, Ethics, I think of lack of ethics in our business and government communities. Okay. And do you have a favorite... um, like movie or television, I'm going to say investigator, detective, attorney that ties into red collar crime? Uh, I don't know of any. You don't know. It could be I, you. Well, it, I mean, excluding my you know, present company, yes. But I don't know any attorney on television that understands this concept. No. Okay. Okay, so let's get into the concept. You give your elevator speech as to how you termed, and I didn't term the pink collar crimes uh, phrase, but you actually came up with red collar crimes. So why don't you give the audience your red collar crime story? Okay, well, actually, this will be the first time that that I've actually disclosed, besides my writing in actually audio form, the the uh, the history of this and i'll just try to give you the nuts and bolts of it without going into super great detail okay uh i would have to say back in 2005 uh i was assigned to uh represent a business owner who had been accused of homicide killing the other business owner he was male and she was uh, female uh they were in their 60s and uh At that point, I had been a prosecutor of homicides, defense counsel of homicides. So I had quite a few years of of this type of experience. And basically, without going into the details of the injuries, uh, I'll spare you that. He uh, was found eventually guilty of first degree murder for caving uh, the other business owner's head in the female's head. So uh, with a claw hammer. And he was sentenced to to prison. Now, there was prior to the case, there was also what I would say is frauds that predated the homicide. And this were things that uh, eventually came up. The business owner who who ended up becoming the victim in the case started seeing that there were certain problems in their cash flow. And as you know, in a small business, when cash flow starts to be a problem, you notice because you can't pay your bills. 
Yeah. And she started to believe that basically uh, that my, uh, my client had something to do with this. And eventually many, there were arguments about money and there was, she started disclosing that it was her belief to other people that there was a fraud that predated the homicide. Well, at some point, probably if I remember correctly, around December of 2004, a homicide occurred. He was found guilty and the case was resolved. But as time went on, I had a hard time letting this case go. There was just something about the case that intrigued me, not only because of my legal background, but as a certified fraud examiner and a certified public accountant, you had white collar crime, fraud, homicide, all mixed in as one. Now, often, often in homicides, not all, all the time, but they can, there's a certain predictability about them. For example, drug deals that go bad. Okay, there's something, uh, there's an inherent risk about that kind of activity that you can foresee a homicide occurring. Other ones may be, for example, volatile domestic relationships. All right. They start out in terms of verbal, then they start to escalate in terms of push and shove, and then batteries, and then they, and there's that escalation, and then there is a homicide. And it could be, you know, the male on the female, female on the male, however it's characterized. So there's a predictability, a foreseeability about this. But I had to start to also challenge my own biases on how I looked at white-collar crime. And I just didn't think that this was something that was common. I started doing research on it and I could not, I would think that there had to be something that talked about violent white collar offenders. I could not find anything. And in fact, it was the opposite because what happens, uh, Kelly, is that because white collar crime is considered and classified as a nonviolent offense, that people extrapolate the nonviolent classification to mean that the offender themselves is also nonviolent by nature. And that is patently false. Now, over many years, many years, I've tried to find cases that were somewhat analogous to the one that I had because there was there was at least what we consider circumstantial evidence that the motive for the homicide was that he did not want to have his fraud disclosed and he wanted to hide it in my case. And that's why he ended up killing killing his business partner. Well, I started finding other cases, more and more cases that were analogous, where the motive was that there was a fraud that predated the homicide, that it was to prevent the detection and disclosure of that fraud, perhaps to the the authorities or whomever else may be, you know, potentially a person receiving that information. And at that point, I just started uh, writing about this. And it was, in many respects, not something that I planned. But I, I found that the at least the scholarship was either inaccurate in terms of description, incomplete, or just simply non-existent. And uh, at that point, I just, I kind of became obsessed with it in the sense that I almost felt like I had to uh, um, set the record straight and to write about not just red collar crime, but white collar crime in a more complete uh, format to give people a template to truly understand what white collar crime fraud offenders are and to disabuse ourselves that somehow that they are kind of 
you know, we put them in another corner. You know, there's crime and then there's the white collar crime and they're in ju- just in a different category altogether. So I've tried to break that down. Now, I called it basically red collar crime because white collar crime morphed into a homicide, red collar crime in the sense the image of blood, blood being red. So I thought that that was somewhat of a, I think, plausible uh, terminology. And the reason why I wanted to call it red collar crime is because I wanted it not just simply to be white collar crime where we say white collar offenders can be violent. But I wanted to hone people in as to the motive, because when you say a violent white collar offender, that doesn't necessarily tell you what the motive is behind their violence. All right. I wanted to look at a specific subgroup of white collar offenders who are actually killing to prevent the disclosure of their fraud schemes in order to help not only to hone people in. But as we'll discuss later on, what happens in family, what happens in workplace situations, investigations, interviewing, such that it gives people a template to understand what kind of offender am I dealing with? What is their behavioral profile? And how can we incorporate that in terms of understanding the subgroup? So there's a lot there, and we're going to be unpacking a lot. But that's kind of the template that I was trying to uh, work off of. Well, I find this like so fascinating because you and I both, I think, want people to understand that criminals aren't just icky people that are poor, that have mental defects, that live on the other side of the tracks. We want like in for pink collar crime, hashtag it's position, not gender. Um, we want people to understand that criminals can look like us. And I get pushback from that until Edwin Sutherland said, you know, white collar crime definition in 1939, people thought of criminals as, you know, well, they're not like me. And so when I was listening and you guys, I'm going to put a bunch of links into the um, show notes for this because Frank has eight I'm going to say sort of class lectures on YouTube. He's got tons of material, but um, just when you, when you look at the idea that we just think criminals don't look like us, what do you say to that? And I'm going to unpack that for you. We have, and I think we've gotten better at chipping away at what I would say are the myths the misperceptions of this this offender group. But I want to let your audience know is why do we still harbor this? So that they at least, you know what, in their own quiet time, if they if they think about what we're talking about, can at least understand why it's inaccurate. First of all, for many years and decades, actually, we have not had the appropriate research on fraud offenders in comparison to street level offenders. So the type of a, so the type of research that we have, and we have a, a lot of it, is is always what I would say is that sensationalistic type. It's always the serial killer, right? Things that we see also on entertainment and media that actually constructs in our own mind a certain uh, template of what a criminal should look like. So, for example, we may, if you ask somebody, well. What does a criminal look like? It's always about that shiftless kind of street level offender, the narcotics dealer, the narcotics smuggler, things of that nature. But what you're but what people have to understand is that, you know, crime is socioeconomic neutral. 
And I want to go even, and when we talk about it, I would even have to say that the way to look at this, Kelly, is more from an antisocial thinking trait in that it's not the question of how they look or dress or educational level. It's a question of how do people think about what they're going to exploit. Such, you may have, uh, and I'm just going to throw some classifications out there. You may have, for example, uh, an accountant who is going to look at a business and say, what is the weakness in their internal controls? Okay, I'm going to go and exploit that. That's an opportunity for me. Another way, look at age. You have somebody who may be very elderly or very old. Okay, what is the weakness? The weakness is, is that one, say, for example, somebody who wants to exploit somebody sexually or violently to rob them knows that I'm going to be able to take advantage of those people because they, are, they can't resist or they're too young to talk and explain what happened to them, or they're too old to fight back. That's an exploitable weakness. Okay. So, yeah. So when we, and, and if you think about it, Kelly, some of the most atrocious crimes in our history, and we go back, were committed by the most well-educated. And often what we do is that we equate a certain moral authority to people who are educated, that somehow they have some type of insight and ethics that the rest of people who are not educated don't. Thus, they're going to do the right thing. That's not true. Part of it is that, you know, and, and this is simply because the population justice doesn't have the appropriate information. Point number two, white collar crime unlike many other crime classifications, has more rationalizations to rely on. It just does. Okay, I can commit the fraud because I'm saving the company. I can commit the fraud because I'm going to be saving people's jobs. So you end up having what I say are called, what I call moral ambiguities that are commingled with, with a crime, such that, for example, crime also has a political component. Who do we prosecute? Who are we willing to go after? Well, you know what? Do we really want to go after this company that employs all these peoples in a town that that employer is the only one that employs them, even though they committed a crime? All right. They pay taxes. And guess what? The government's going to need their tax revenue. Are we willing to go after them? So there's a certain moral ambiguity that does not exist with other crime classifications. Let me give you an example. There isn't going to be a rationalization or moral ambiguity if you decide to sexually assault a child. What's going to be your rationalization? You're boxed in. What's going to be your rationalization if, in fact, somebody's going to come in and, and commit some type of terrorist act? All right. So it just doesn't lend itself to 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 the to the type of rationalizations that white collar crime does. This is not to say that the rationalizations are justifiable. I'm saying is that people have a way out. I spoke to a, a neuropsychologist and we talked about our, uh, rationalizations. He says he said to me, Frank, let me tell you what rationalizations are. It's when you combine your primal need to survive and you couple that with your intellect, and you're going to get your rationalization. Ooh, I right? like that. And so we have a little bit more of that in this case. Point number three, we don't, we have not wrapped ourselves around the concept, Kelly, that aggression, the concept of aggression comes in different forms. Typically, when you think about aggression, we think of aggression in terms of a violent act, something that physically is going to do something to control us. But we don't think that aggression comes in different forms to satisfy different agendas. 
So some people might say, you know what? My agenda is that I want to go and embezzle asset misappropriation, whatever the fraud is, because I can. I'm going to aggress against them. And that company may go bankrupt because of what I do. Well, too bad, so sad. I'm going to exploit that. Another one may say, I'm going to aggress and commit some type of a sexual assault against a woman because that's my agenda. But people still have not equated aggression with fraud yet. All right. Now, it doesn't mean that they do not suffer the consequences of it. They just have not made that necessary extrapolation that the harm that they suffered was also a version of aggression in a different form. Find out if you lose your retirement. OK, believe me, you're going to you're not going to feel good. OK, you're going to you know, look at what happened to a lot of Madoff's victims when they lost money. OK. Oh, yeah. All right. So. I, you know, we don't have to go into that, but I think I've made the point in that. Point number three, I think also that we have to consider what I call the role of biases. And the most salient one that I would tell you is the one that's called projection bias. And it's something that we so easily go down. And I do it all the time because I would think that after the decades of what I've done, I would have gotten used to things or somehow. And you don't. Okay, because there's always one more layer. Okay, there's one more layer, rock layer that of of human depravity that you have to reconcile in your mind. And what do I mean by projection bias? So let's just go with 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 a template that we are ethical people. We expect other people to be ethical and we expect other people that may come from our background to to share our value system. That may be in our mind a strength. Okay, but the people on the other end may actually see that as a weakness to exploit. So I make the assumption, okay, uh, I'm going to hire this person. They're my accountant. I don't need to worry about internal controls because this person, oh, by the way, they, they came from my church. And because I came from my church, I know that we have the same belief system and that we're both co equally ethical. And then, of course, we find out that your business has been fleeced. Now, I'm not, you know, trying to be disparaging here that we rely on other people. That's not the point. But the but the leap we make about projecting our value system on other people gets us in trouble. Okay? Because oh, I don't have to do my due diligence. All right? I'm the auditor. Oh, I've been uh, I've been auditing this business for decades. I know this person. We we play golf together. Our kids go to church together. I don't have to audit them. How's everything going? Is everything in line? No problem. You sign off on the audit report. Now, I know that may be overly simplistic, but yet it's not. Because a lot of times people will say, well, gee, I didn't think that, you know, this was my friend. We worked together. I didn't think they were going to do this to me. You know, we shared the same value system, I thought. So we can't minimize how what the impact of projection bias is in terms of this understanding of fraud offenders. Let me give you an example. If you were to ask somebody, if they were honest with you, that, you know what, these are individuals, they come from a certain background, socioeconomic background. Do you believe that those individuals have your value system? Okay. I would, if they're honest with you, they'll probably say, well, maybe, but maybe not. Okay. Because we equate a certain socioeconomic status with having perhaps a more of a proclivity toward criminality, all right? So, but, you know, if you come from this group, well, you know what? We have the same value system, so we don't need to worry about that. 
So what I would say is there's a lot of risk factors. That's how, how I look at it, these kind of concentric circles where when you start adding them up or stacking them up, you're going to get myths. You're going to start getting profile uh, mis- misperceptions. And why is that important? As we'll discuss, because then that impacts your reaction to what happens when fraud occurs. It also impacts whether we prosecute. It impacts on how we're going to investigate a case. Because if you have myths, if you have misperceptions about a, about an offender group, okay, how are you going to approach your your uh, how are you going to approach your investigation? Look at the mythologies behind Madoff. Okay, even the SEC said. And I don't have the right, the exact quote, but something, he doesn't look like a Ponzi schemer. Okay, so I'll take a pause there, but I just want to at least give your your listenership something to think about in that respect. Well, this is so timely that you say that because Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos apparently a quote came out that she's like, they don't put pretty people like me in jail. Right. And you know what? That's also, we'll talk about the behavioral, that's, I mean, if anybody can't see the entitlement in that statement, I I mean, that screams entitlement. (laughs) It screams entitlement. And that happens often. And we don't have, I don't think we'll have time, but maybe at some point in the future, we'll talk about how the criminal justice system treats white collar offenders versus street level offenders now. And I'll give you my thoughts on that someday. Um, because there again, all of the mythologies also impact how the judiciary looks at them. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I can give a good example, except I'll probably get canceled. So I'm not going to give a good example of it. (laughs) But, um, I, so I was, I have to tell you, Frank, I did a lot of like homework before this episode, probably more than I've done for most of my episodes, because you have so much content out there. And one thing that I went down this huge rabbit hole with was the psychology and the personality traits and malignant narcissism. And um, I, I just like, wow, Um the malignant narcissism, you had a doctor who was telling people that they had cancer and was billing for cancer treatments when they didn't. Like, how does a person do that and look at themselves in the mirror? All right. Well, I can explain that to you and I'll give you an example just so. And this is what I would share with you and also your listenership. Anytime you think about a fraud offender, Think about the the analog to a street-level offender. Okay, how do we look at, say, for example, a narcotics dealer on the street going and selling drugs and getting an eight, nine-year-old hooked on narcotics? Yeah, not good. Not good. What am I getting at here? The point is, you have an educated person. He's a doctor. He took some oath. And guess what? He said, you know what? These people are my, are objects to exploit. Okay, he used his knowledge to exploit them. All right, and he got away with it for many years, giving people chemotherapy when they didn't even have cancer. Okay, okay, I have to so ask this: What so, happened to him? Uh, he well, he uh, he went to prison for probably the rest of his life. Okay, well, the the point is, and I'll get into the behavioral is. 
whenever you think of what we're seeing here and we say, my God, ask ourselves, what's the analog if we had to say that to a street level offender? So that you can see is don't get caught up in the person, get caught up in how they think about an exploitable situation. Now, let's get to the behavioral. The way you look at the behavioral is this. It's not a cause of what they're doing. Okay, it's does. Is this a force multiplier? Meaning if somebody doesn't have a conscience. If somebody is hyper exploitative, if somebody is very entitled, does this increase the probability in their decision making to go down a certain path? Okay. Absolutely. That's how you look at it. Look at it as a risk factor. So, say, for example, somebody who is psychopathic. All right. Now, often when we have certain emotions, those, you know, we all may have some negative emotions. Okay. And we think about acting on them, but then we have a physiological response and and we have something that pulls us back and we say, you know what, that's just not a good idea. There's a physiological response or we start to say we have regrets. What happens if you remove emotions out of the equation of a person? Okay. Doesn't that increase? It makes it what you're going to do easier. What's holding you back? All right especially with people who are psychopathic and may have a high need to control. And especially in murder, you know, murder is the highest form of control over a person. I mean, talk about a solution to a problem. You want to control this person, take them out. Now I'm not recommending anything. All I'm saying is, is that when you have a mindset, all right, and you don't know what's behind what's called that, that mask that person's wearing. And this applies to whether or not you are coming from a a poor socioeconomic background or a wealthy one. It doesn't matter. If you are somebody that's without conscience, if you're somebody without guilt, that's the issue you have to ask yourself. And how does that play as a risk factor in the decision that they're going to make to exploit somebody? So, well, for example, and and, and if I may. Yeah. Uh, let me. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a, a, a brief example. They did a study with certain serial. Now, I may be getting ahead of myself, but there's something called the uh, the psychopathic. Uh, it's a psychopathic test that was developed by Dr. Robert Har, and it's a scale from zero to forty. Okay, most people, normal people, score between zero and three. When you're getting up there to 40, you're looking at like that perfect psychopath. And you know who you might want to think about? I guess I, I enjoy just because it, he fits it so beautifully is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. So you get, you get that image. Okay. So that would be the prototypical psychopath at a 40, hyper intelligent and smart with no conscience. Okay. Now they did some studies on serial killers. And some of them, there were like two or three of them that scored in the 30s. Okay, in the 30s. Dr. Har and his colleague went into a company and got a sample size of about over 200. These were everybody with a four-year degree, doctors and lawyers. There were several of them, vice president types, board members, I believe, uh, who scored in the 30s. Kelly, (laughs) what am I getting at? Again, don't look at, don't get, what I always call is this, Kelly, do not be seduced by appearances. 
do not oh, yeah. be seduced by the appearances, but people are equal, are easily seduced by appearances. All right. And how they talk. Here we have people who are well-educated in companies. Now, they represented 4% of their sample size. In the general population, they represent 1%. Now, can you imagine they were 4% in this company? They were, what, three, three, four times the average of what is normally found in the general population. And these I are may people have worked who, there. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have, Kelly. You know, <laughs> so, but the point is that you have these serial killers who scored high in the 30s, and you had these people, well-educated doctors, lawyers, et cetera, who were also in the 30s, running companies. So, well, and so, I mean, you can look at it like, okay, they didn't kill anyone, but, you know, I used to always say, yeah, look at the trail of dead bodies, meaning careers that they right. now, now, Now you hit a fantastic point. This is why we have to be careful not to always just look at criminality when we talk about these issues. More, You're better off on some level in asking yourself, how does this person display antisocial traits? Because typically criminality is an antisocial trait, but you can have antisocial traits that can destroy people, but they're not criminal. Right. Okay. You bully people. All right. You can destroy them where you're sending them to go and get psychological help because they are so emotionally destroyed about being under under the bullying of a supervisor. Okay, so we know for sure that malignant narcissism, we know that people who have what are called the dark, dark triad, Machiavellian types, psychopathic types are prone to being bullies. Okay, what happens when your boss is a bully and they know how to go and walk that fine line? If we were to actually assess them, would they be psychopathic? Okay, are they going to be charged with a crime? No, they're not. Are they antisocial? You bet. Are they going to try to bully somebody to, to engage in fraud? You bet. So these are the machinations. These are those little risk factors that I'm trying to get people to think outside the box have a multidisciplinary approach because this is the problem, Kelly. Accountants, auditors, fraud examiners, what I've noticed in my lectures, do not have a multidisciplinary template to understand. You have to, and this is the key, you don't have to be an expert, but you have to have a working vocabulary to understand what you're reacting to, what you're observing, so that all of a sudden things don't look like just little personality quirks. All of a sudden, you're saying, you know what? That means something. Or you go into a business and people are behaving a certain way. And what are we going to rely on there? Well, now we're going to start looking at the social psychological impact of social influence. And why are people behaving the way they are? So I'm not going to, I don't want, I'll take a pause there. But this is why, you know, what you're doing is so important that you're educating people to really have a more holistic understanding of this offense so that we can mitigate exploitation. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. No more than murders are going to go away or narcotics trafficking. But can we do something to mitigate the impact of this? I think we can. So this just makes me think of a case I had, which was a, a C-suite executive who embezzled her, you know, let's just say embezzled. And I wasn't allowed to do the interview because 
they didn't want someone at my level in the organization to interview a C-suite executive because they thought that he would take, he wouldn't respond well to it. it. And I just was like, so they're interviewing him, other C-suite people and texting me like, okay, what do I say now? Right. Right. So it, be, it was only because he had a, I'm going to say, larger than life personality, reputation, and some low level, you know, investigator. Like you can't accuse someone. And it wasn't accusing someone. I mean, we had the goods, but right. they, so even in a situation like that, they wouldn't allow me to do the investigation or to do the questioning. And there we go again. Why is there a dichotomy between what you're trying to do, your job interviewing, okay, a a, a person that's well-educated and say, for example, somebody who may be, and this is just to say a street level offender where detectives are going to come in, they're going to bring them in a room and they're going to question that person. Why should what you were trying to do be of lesser importance? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the psychology section on your YouTube was just I mean, it, it, it took me to a place where I was like, oh, oh, dear. Um, and I loved this um, saying they are prisoners of the present. So do you want to talk about prisoners of the present? Because I I was just like, bells went off for me. Sure. Okay. What I mean by prisoners of the present is this. Often fraud offenders, for example, non-white collar offenders, it doesn't matter. They are always constantly getting in trouble or they're doing something that they're that they're not learning from. What I mean by prisoners of the present is that they have a certain personality type where they're simply not learning such in in this respect. I've made mistakes, we make mistakes. We reflect, we make adjustments, we try to be better. Okay. By prisoners of the present, what I mean is that they're not capable of reflecting on the past a sense of self-awareness and saying, what have I done wrong? Or projecting into the future and saying, if I go down a certain path, this could happen. In a sense, they're stuck right in the present. And that's why, in a sense, you're constantly seeing the same problems with people because you're incapable of reflecting on the past or projecting into the future about what they're doing. This is especially true if you're almost if you have that void. If you have a void inside of you, especially the psychopathic types who are incredibly antisocial, not necessarily just criminal. You have a high percentage of people in prison who are psychopathic. I'm also talking about those that are smart and know how to walk the line and they don't get into trouble criminally. So they're the ones that get fired from their jobs, all right? Or they go from one relationship to another relationship to another relationship, and they're just exploitative. But they're repeating that same behavior because they're stuck. This is who they are. The way to look at it, it's like a band. I, I'm trying to remember. You remember that game Pac-Man? Oh, where, yeah. You know, remember, it just it's like there are certain boundaries. It bounces back and forth. So think about it. You know what? We may have a very large continuum to work off of. Theirs is much narrower, and they're bouncing within that narrow uh, band. 
so that they can't think outside of it. All right. Ooh, I like that. That's a good visualization. And what happens? Then you have a sense that the way they're going to assess risk may be different than the way you and Iris uh, assess risk or punishment. And what's interesting is, is that there may be a situation in which there may be very little to be gained from their antisocial slash criminal behavior, little gain, and yet they're willing to take big risks for very little gain because they're stuck. They're stuck. So that leads me to a whole other section of um, murder for hire and the whole professional versus amateur. Sure. Now, to answer that question, let me ask you this question. Did you want me to make I, I can go there, but did you want me to talk first about gender distinctions? Because that might help us. Or do you OK, want to yeah, absolutely. That's a good because, yeah, there are differences there. So I like that. So, yeah. Why don't we start with the gender? OK, now. The red collar offenders that were female versus the male, there are some distinctions. This is what I would say is that is the big one is that what I find is that the women tend to also work in teams. All right. They work in teams for probably multiple you know, reasons. One of them is, is that there's just maybe a distinction in, in just physicalities. I mean, and, and I'm not trying to be crude here, but if you're going to try to take out a man, you as a woman may not have the strength to do it or the means. Okay. So they may try to do it as a team and we'll have those examples as, as, as we get into, and as we get into methodologies and all that, um, the, the women, and, and please understand this is not just red collar, but you also see this, for example, often in, uh, what I think they're called angels of death. So often in, in hospitals, women will work together to kill patients. So they're a team. All right. And they're also and they also uh, that's also an easy place for them to find their prey because you have a patient who is helpless and they can go and prey on that person. Okay, that's that. I just want to give you that there are there's a team element to it. Women are also more apt to use perhaps some type of sedative or poison in order to in order to weaken the individual and not just that at one time it could be giving that person a sedative over a period of time as well when we look at one of the uh, red collar offenders what she did to her fiance over time to weaken him and also he ended up uh, almost he became emaciated starving so the in terms of tools i would have to say you know what they may use a weapon like a gun a sedative uh, a, a blunt force trauma, like a, something like a hard object, absolutely like the men. But the distinction I have found right now is that they they're more apt than the men to they're more apt to work in teams than the men. So I have to interrupt you. Have you watched Dead to Me? Uh, no. Oh, okay. There's a team in Dead to Me. No spoilers. Okay. Thank you. Two, thank two, you. I, two women you. and uh, blunt force and oh yeah. So okay. Alrighty. Dead to Me. Okay. So it's a big, yeah, there we go. Now, so I would have to say that's that's a nice general uh, over, you know, basic overview of, of the distinctions that I have found. Let's look at would you like me to look at some of the female uh, red collar offenders? Would you like me to now talk about that? Or did you have something else in mind? Well, the murder for hire, I find. Oh, the murder for hire. OK, right. I apologize. The murder, the, the murder for hire is basically. 
uh, just like the name is, you're contracting out to have somebody do the killing for you with the belief that somehow you can insulate yourself from culpability. If, if somebody else is doing it, then you create another rationalization in your mind that you never did it. Therefore, your hands are clean, et cetera, et cetera. Now, red collar offenders, now, they will contract out, but they tend to contract out to amateurs, not the professionals. All right. And the, the conclusion that I've come to is that because they have a, a, I can tell that they have this almost need to control how it goes down. They think that because they're good at fraud and they're good at planning, that now they're going to be great at planning a kill. Now, I'm not recommending anything here. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just telling you what I've read and observed from, from how they go about it is that they end up getting people like down on their luck. Even the promise to pay is enough to get somebody to do it. All right. Even the promise to pay. They, however, amateurs tend to leave more evidence behind. And then you can back it into the, the, the fender who the red collar fender who contracted out professionals don't leave that behind and they, and they're not going to have anybody tell them how to do it. They're going to do it on their own. They're going to be paid and they disappear into the night. What's interesting with the red collar offenders is that even when they're in jail, they're trying to plan the murder of people and they end up talking so much that they end up talking to an undercover cop. Oh, yeah. So it's this not is just on TV. <laughs> yeah. But then the question is, but then you have to ask yourself, how is this possible? OK, now let's go back to the behavioral. If you are somebody that that harbors antisocial traits, and one of them is what is referred to as super optimism, okay, what that means is that you think you're so good at what you're do, you, you do, you're not going to get caught, okay? And that's a very common uh, criminal trait, actually, especially somebody whose lifestyle, in that you think you're that good. And then, of course, when they do get caught, it's like a big ego blow, and they can't understand how it could have happened to them. My God. So they have this super optimism, this grandiosity, their narcissism that, you know what, I know I can get away with this, even when they're being recorded. All right. So that's what kind of gets them in trouble. It doesn't mean that when they contract out that there's not a successful kill. All right. It could happen that the person does get killed, as we'll see. It just means it just means that they're more apt to be caught. Right. I mean, I, I went to a presentation a long time ago, and it was assistant United States attorney who is I'm good friends with. And um, she called it. It's when the CEO gets called to, you know, gets a grand jury, as I call it, invitation. And the CEO has this. Well, yeah, I'm a CEO. I'm a master of the universe. I can handle this. I don't need my lawyer, especially with the six minute increment. And all the prosecutors just giggle right right yeah because you know when they're successful and people equate success with money so you get a lot of ceos who look at their bank account and think that they're very very smart because of how much money that they've amassed and thanks to elon musk i think that maybe um that will be changing <laughs> hopefully people will maybe see that the thing that always I'm going to say catches me is like, or keeps me where I'm at is we have pretty much a fixed limit on IQ. 
So someone that is worth $5 billion doesn't have an IQ that is, you know, however many more times than someone who has $5 million. And, and that's fair. But this is what the myth is this, is that we equate intelligence with sophistication. And they're not the same thing. I know many people are not well-educated, but are incredibly sophisticated. And I know yes. a lot of intelligent people who have PhDs and, are, and are, are intelligent, but not very sophisticated. And that's where, the, that's where a lot of people who are what I would call high IQ people tend to get in trouble. And that's why they're easily exploitable, actually, because they start to think that their intelligence and their IQ is a replacement for sophistication. No, it's not. Yeah, which leads us to the next one. And I get this question a lot um, from, you know, potential clients is family members. It's like, oh, I, my niece works for me. She wouldn't embezzle. And you have a whole section on your YouTube about intimate and then also family members. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. The This is, in my opinion, these are the hard they're all they're all tragedies. I want to be clear, but there's just something about the um, family and intimate that I think transgress into the sacred. And, and what I mean by that is. It just seems that once we start getting into violence and exploitation within a family, it takes a different complexion. Within families, especially the ones that I found is where you have adult male children. These are the ones that I was able to find who either take out both or one of their parents at the same time. And there were frauds that predated the homicide in these cases. And what we have to understand is this. It's, this is not just a one-time event. When you do a social history of these people, they had problems with them when they were kids and they were simply probably budding psychopaths. All right. That's what they probably were, or at best malignant narcissists. And when you have those type of children, as my as as a, 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 a colleague of mine once said, it's like a dolphin pod that gave birth to a shark. Oh, <laughs> Okay, so you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know, a mammal that gave birth to a reptile. And now you're just talking two different species who don't understand each other. And what you have is a situation in which families kind of make these adjustments, Kelly, to their, to their misconduct over the years. But it's like drip, drip, drip. It's not just this like from point A to point Z where it's so horrendous that the parent's going to do something, for example. It's like A to C, C to D. So you're always making these adjustments around this person's behavior. The problem is when you have, if they have the behavioral traits, of, uh, if they're psychopathic or, say, malignant narcissists, what the research shows is that the traits of, of being highly exploitative combined with highly entitled produce a violent reaction very quickly. If there's a provocation, if there's a trigger there, they will go from zero to 10 really fast. Now, this is the kicker, though. It doesn't mean that at the time of the provocation that the violence is contemporaneous with the provocation. It just means that 
the, the train has left the station. A decision now has been made by that person that this person, meaning their parents, are getting in the way of their goals. And we're going to have to do something about that. It takes me back to the, what was it, Menendez brothers? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well-educated, entitled. Yeah. Absolutely. And you even saw how they behaved at trial. Like nothing happened. So, you see, and this is the thing. They may be good at manipulation, but this is the other thing that I hope your listeners understand. Being good at manipulation doesn't mean that you're highly intelligent. People make that, you know, you can, you know, if you manipulate a child, all right, that's not hard. But what happens with these people is that they get what is referred to as duping delight. The fact that they were so smart that they were able to get over somebody. For example, I like to think that I'm a trusting person. I try to think well of people. Unfortunately, people who are antisocial look at my traits as stupid, all right? They see that as a weakness for me to exploit, not as a something to, to celebrate and to say, you know what, we, are of, you know, we have good value systems. That's not what they're looking at. They're saying the fact that you have morality is your problem, okay? It's not my problem. And if you want to have ethics and goodwill and give me the benefit of the doubt, it's your fault that you gave that to me. All right. And the fact is, I'm going to take advantage of that because it's your fault. Let me give you an example. I'm sure you must have found maybe in your lifetime somebody's wallet or a purse, and you return it to that person. I found many of them. I take it. I've actually delivered it to their house. If I drop it and somebody sees it and picks it up, takes the cash, it's my fault that I could not protect my assets and I deserved what I got. Yeah. All right. It's my fault. So you have to understand, as my colleague once said, the way to look at antisocial criminal thinking is when you see white, they see black. When you see black, they see white. And that whatever you think is your strength in their eyes is a weakness to exploit. So well, getting back to now, getting back to to the to the parents, for example, because they're the they're the ones that get killed, is that because they think that they're a child, they don't think that they're capable of doing this. They're not capable of going to that next level, but yet they do. You see what happened? The parents started to engaging in projection bias. They're thinking this is my child. They're not capable of doing this. This is not something that I would ever do. They let their guard down. And then all of a sudden we have a, 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 a either a double homicide or one of the cases, a quadruple homicide. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's why these, these families have so much family turmoil, Kelly, because the traditional notions of reward and punishment do not apply. What happens when you try to impose rules? They see that as a form of restriction to their goals. It's called goal interference something to aggress against. You're getting in the way of what I want. You come home, you see somebody in your house trying to burglarize your house. You try to do something about it. They may hurt you. Why? You're getting in the way of what they want, which is your property. What happens when the parent tries to say, be of goodwill, give somebody a second chance. They don't interpret that as, wow, I'm going to now reflect and try to change. Oh, no. They're going to look at that as a weakness to exploit. 
So what do you end up getting? Constant family turmoil, constant headbutting. And then you're going to have these people live under your roof. You better be ready to for identity theft, for assets being taken, and then homicide. The, the progression is there. What I'm getting at is once you study the family history, it's there. It's not a surprise. Is it horrific? Yes. Is it shocking? Yes. But I would also share with you is that when you look at the risk factors, Kelly, it's not a surprise also. In terms of now husband and wife, all right, this is again back to the situation where is is somebody, is a spouse going to think that the other spouse is capable of the ultimate act? Maybe there was domestic problems, maybe domestic abuse, emotional abuse, financial exploit, something. But to say now we're going to ex- extrapolate that all the way to a homicide, that's a tough one for a lot of people to go. Tough. I, I have cases, if, if you want examples, I'll go there, but I'll take a pause. Yeah, no, um, you know what? Because <laughs> we can, you know, I got so much, the cases are beautiful and because the, because they exemplify what I'm saying to the T. Yeah. So, so I'll leave I, it up to you. You know what? I actually think this is a good end for this section. And I think I want to have you come back for another one and we can like, I mean, I have a couple of cases, um, kind of local cases that I'd love to get your opinion on. And then maybe you could dissect them for like the second part of the episode. Okay. What? Yeah. Whatever. Whatever you want for your listenership. Absolutely. Okay. So, fraudish listeners, we are going to finish here, but we're going to have Frank come back, and we're going to. I'm going to pick out a couple of cases for him, and have him sort of like do a what after action review, as they say in law enforcement or in the military, and because um, I've got two cases. Um, they're both women and both husbands. Actually, I have three cases, all women, all husbands. And I'd love to have you take a look at them. And I think the audience would find these cases fascinating because they're also relatively recent. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, we will have Frank back. Okay. Thank you so much, Frank. And I'm looking forward to it. This was wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, awesome. Awesome.